You are listening to a Pleasure Podcast. For more from our Sex Podcast Collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Sluts and Scholars. Thanks for tuning in. Sluts and Scholars is a sex-positive, shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter. While we love to give advice and resources, please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy. Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars, where we talk smart and fuck smarter. I'm Nicoletta, and I'm a marriage and family therapist and sexologist. And I'm Simone, Nicoletta's sexually fascinated law student friend. Uh, This week, we are joined by Kate Lister, uh, who identifies as intellectually slutty, which really resonates with me. She spends most of her time peeping up the skirts of history and reporting to what she finds to over 270,000 followers on Twitter, as you very well likely know her as at whores of yore. Kate has been fascinated by sex ever since she found a stash of porn mags in a hedge on the way to school, and Stuart Riley gave her two sherbet dib dabs and a a glitter pen (laughs) to be allowed to look at them. Had she not been able to channel this interest into an academic discipline, she may very well have wound up a porn baron. She is now, instead, a lecturer at Leeds Trinity University, where she researches the history of sexuality and curates the online research project, Whores of Your. Welcome. Hi, it's nice to meet you. What a bio. I, w- I have actual real questions, but what are dib-dabs? Dib-dabs. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have sherbet in the States? Yes. Just, well, n- not that. Our sherbet is ice cream. It's not what you think. Oh, okay. So sherbet, it's like kind of like really refined sugar and it kind of fizzes on your tongue. Oh, you know, like, like, fun, get, like fun dip. It's like fun dip or pixie sticks. Yeah, yes. The stuff that's in pixie sticks. And a sherbet dib dabber is a lollipop that you dab into uh, the pixie sticks powder. And it was worth it. Oh, it was completely worth it. Absolutely. Yes. I would still do things for a sherbet dib dab. <laughs> that's so funny because we had somebody who said that their first porn thing was they were scared to bring it home or something. I don't know what if this was from an interview or a TV show I was watching. And then they like threw it in the hedge in front of their house. And so I wonder if you found the one that somebody threw. Hedge porn is a real thing. And I don't know if there has been any research into this yet. But anyone who grew up, especially in the UK, in the 80s and 90s, will remember finding stacks of pornography in bushes. And the question is always, who was putting it there? And why was it there? And it seems to have happened across the UK, and no one knows why. But yeah, hedge pond, real thing. I, so, I mean, I can think of, you know, you've, the hedge provides cover for, you know, furtive masturbation, <laughs> and then you must leave the weapon of the crime at the scene. With your evidence all over it? I know, I guess. I've, got, I've, I've tweeted about it several times <laughs> to say... Does, does anyone remember this? Did it happen to you too? And what I get back is loads of people going, yes, hedge porn, that was a thing. But nobody <laughs> nobody comes forward to say, I left it there and this is why. <laughs> Maybe it was in some parenting book, like don't let your children find your porn, don't keep it in the house, put it in the hedges. Well, it's sort of like the modern day, like clearing your history, right? So like sometimes when you're feeling, when people with sexual shame are yeah. feeling really turned on, they'll like look up a thing that like, is really in the bowels of Pornhub. And then afterwards, after they come, they're like, oh my God, what the fuck was I watching? And then they're like, they like shut it down. It could be like the, the sort of top suggestions will be something, something like that, like shame. Like people were just too embarrassed to take it home. Or someone suggested like um, 
like the UK we call them doggers, but you might call them something different in the States, like the people that meet up to have sex in car parks oh. and just like outside. Yeah, it might have been like like those people or and then the kind of suggestions run out. It's why was so much pornography left in hedges in the 80s? Well, it also could be a sort of, you know, like um, little free library situation where there's like a network of people you know, reading a porn magazine and like leaving it in a hedge. And Someone would knows, like this. No, no, not somebody would like it. And like somebody knows that that's a hedge where there's porn so that they go get it. It's like the Illuminati, but for porn. Right, not like, yeah, not like the Underground Railroad because that's like a fucked up analogy, but like, you know, an underground network of like, let us get The Da Vinci Code. Now I'm sorry that I asked about dib dabs. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I feel like we could talk about hedge porn forever. Um, it's a real thing. And I've no idea. Yeah, research needs to be done. Well, speaking of research, something we talk about here, obviously, on our podcast is the combination of scholarly scholarliness <laughs> and sluttery. And so how sometimes pushback, how sometimes people push back against that. And I wonder how Trinity has responded to you studying whores? Huh. Well, uh, they've, they've been broadly supportive, but I think that whenever, you, whenever anybody researches the subject of sex is it comes with a lot of stigma and um, it can make a lot of people uncomfortable. So there's a few ways of dealing with that, uh, which is to try and make it really academic, as dry as a bone. Um, which some people go for, and that's not my approach. So there have been some conversations that we've had to have about, you know, is there a reason that you're tweeting pornography to thousands of people? <laughs> um, but they've been they've been quite supportive of it. But it is difficult for anybody who's researching sex in any capacity because you do experience a hefty amount of stigma. And so. It seems like they're not, you know, censoring you or anything, but what was your professional journey coming? This, like, really prolific uh, internet sensation sex researcher, were you already there? Or kind of how did you, how did you come into this? No, I'd love to tell you that it was a really well-thought-out research project. <laughs> it wasn't. It was, um, I was researching medieval sex, um, I can't even remember what for now. And I found the name of a 14th century woman who'd been arrested in London whose name was Clarice Clatterbollocks. And I thought that was so funny that I wanted to tweet about it. And then I had, I realised that whore rhymes with your, thought that I was hysterical. <laughs> oh, you are hysterical? No, it's, it's like this millstone around my neck. It's really funny until you have to try and be serious. And then suddenly you've got this really silly name. But like, anyway, but yes. So that was what I did. And then suddenly the feed started to grow and grow and people started to be more and more interested in it and, and talked back to me and gave me feedback. And and, and it just, it, the more it grew, the more my name became associated with um, the whores of yore and researching sex. And then that in turn fed my research. It provided more opportunities and people was that, that was what they wanted to, to know about. And that's what I'm happy researching. So it was kind of, no, like almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy thing you know is it, the feed got bigger and bigger and then that was what i researched aside from clatter bollocks i'm curious what else you found that was interesting about medieval sexuality oh so much so much that's it's just it's an inexhaustible supply of of just demented things that people have done to one another over the centuries um 
things that, that I suppose the, the medieval period is really interesting because they have this reputation for being really prudish and like, you know, chastity belts and, and all of those kind of things. But they weren't like that at all. They were actually, I mean, it wasn't like a sexual utopia, but they were quite comfortable around sex. Like a lot of their um, text and their literature is making jokes about sex and they don't shy, shy away from knob gags and fart jokes and <laughs> all those things. So people are quite surprised. Like a joke, like a joke with a penis? Like, yep, yep. Lots of like little hat on it. <laughs> um, they they like to draw penises in trees. That uh, that turns up quite a lot in medieval art. Penis trees. Yeah, like, they were quite quite open about about talking about sex. Like small penises, or like the tree was the penis. Like it was a regular tree, except instead of fruit, it had dicks in it. <laughs> that reminds me of something my best friend from middle school would have drawn. She did a lot of dick drawings. <laughs> Oh yeah, they they take dick drawings to the next level. They get quite creative with it, but uh, but yeah. So the medieval people are a lot more sexually liberated than you might give them credit for. Yeah. Would you say that applies to almost any era? Like, what do you know? I don't know if this is your if this has fallen under your research, but like prehistoric sex and like we know about some of the shit that went down like in antiquity and like how did sexual mores shift like to the Renaissance? And I know this is like a very big long topic so not like an entire history of human sexuality but more like <laughs> in five minutes are, like more what are like little things that you're like guess what this is what was going that's like is it true that marriage in prehistory was like some guy grabbing some woman by the hair and like dragging her into his cave or like is there more nuance and that there's always nuance there's always nuance and the thing about history is you know and, and i know that the historians will shout at me for this but you're, you're most of the time you're making educated guesses because we weren't there. We weren't there to see this stuff. What we have to do is try and interpret from the sources that we've been left over. So that can skew the data, and you've always got to be aware of that. So if the only thing that's been left over from, I don't know, the Middle Ages is, is a lot of pictures of dicks in trees, then you could be forgiven for thinking, my God, they were obsessed with dicks in trees. But what if they weren't? What or maybe there was the a fruit that looked like a pear that... Right, absolutely. Or what if it just happened to be this, these couple of random drawings and only two of them existed, but that's all that survived. So you can't be absolute with this stuff. All you can do is look at the evidence and go, we think it suggests this. So when people come out and say things like, oh, back in the caveman times, it just stop them right there because we, we don't know what happened. We can make guesses. But we don't know. There's no difference. It's always interpreting. Yeah, cave drawings, they're really interesting. There's a lot of dicks going on there. There's a lot of uh, vulvas and there's a lot of sexual images. And there's one cave painting where there's an argument being made that there's a condom being used in it. It's kind of, it's, it's, it, it's an interesting argument, but, you know, not quite sure. But again, what you're doing is looking at cave paintings and trying to interpret an entire civilization and what they thought about sex you know it might be the same thing as going into a men's toilet stand and you know looking at what's drawn on the wall there and trying to understand the entire culture of sex <laughs> but that's probably what people i guess now we have the internet but you have the internet yeah but that's just like a bigger systemic thing of like who writes the history books right you know in the yeah. past it's mostly written by like white men or colonialist people and so, like, what gets, what survives, what comes through, and, like, what yep. projections are being used to show what's happening in our history. Yep. Maybe we only have the, uh, there's, like, oodles of vulva bushes that we don't see. Yeah. Yeah, right? We just don't know where those are. And that's the thing about sex history is it's so difficult to get unbiased testimony from just everyday people. 
is you'll find things about like what the church or moralizers or doctors or lawyers thought about sex, but just so rare to actually find I don't know, like a diary or something where someone just says, I had sex today and it was like this. It's really like that piece of evidence is almost missing throughout sex history. It's really frustrating. The first thing I remember of reading like sexuality in history was in my eighth grade English class. We had to, oh, what is that old, sort of like medieval book, um, Chaucer? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it? A woman hath no beard. Um, yeah, so it was Absalom at the window. Yeah, yep. my yes. dad fucking loves that. So we had to pick, I love that we were reading this in eighth grade because we weren't having sex ed class, but we were reading like butthole at the window. And Brilliant. so we had to pick like an excerpt to recite for our class. And so I picked that one. And so for people who haven't read it, you need to read it. But it's basically uh, a person with a vulva comes to the window of somebody and they think it's like a, a face with a beard, but really it's her bush and then like pretty much eats her asshole. <laughs> yep. That's it. That's it. Merry old England. <laughs> um, my, that's so, f- my father like literally quotes that in old English. Like it is his, my father loves Chaucer and like that is like, I grew up hearing that recited. That's so funny. Um, do you find that, I mean, I've, I, do you find that most of your sources come from men? Uh, yes, yeah, they they do because it's again is what what you're dealing with written sources is is it's a real privilege to be able to write throughout history and it was typically the wealthy people that could write or it was uh, religious educated people that could write and most of them were men so the overwhelming sources that survive due to the fact that they were the only ones to be writing is by men but that doesn't we have to look very hard and there are sources written by women and and. But you've just got to you've just got to really look for them. How do you find that they're distinguished? Women writing from men, mm-hmm. if at all. I suppose, you know, I suppose the essentialist, just like sociologically conditioned. Like, how would women kind of make? Permanent? How do they? How do they talk about sex? Yeah. Hmm. Uh, it's difficult, obviously, because they're socially constructed to feel a lot more guilt and shame around their sexuality. Um, But that doesn't mean just because we've got a book by um, like a religious, a nun or or, um, a midwife who's saying that, you know, sex is sinful. It doesn't mean that everybody thought that, but you do get midwives start to be writing round about the sort of the, the 1600s and probably one of the most important pieces of writing about women's sexuality are the diaries of Anne Lister who was um, a woman who lived in Halifax in the early 19th century. Any relation? Wrote, no, well, I don't know. I need to look into this. I, read, I hope that she is. But she was, she was a lesbian. She was gay. And she wrote all about her exploits and her lovers in a coded diary that was only discovered, I think it was in the 60s, it was finally decoded. And she, that is an unbiased account of her sexuality and what she, who she loves and who she fancies. So that is such a rare and important piece of writing. How did they figure out the coding? Well, she was super intelligent with Anne Lister. So she made up her own diary code out of like Greek letters and Latin alphabets and all this stuff. And, um, and she wrote millions of words. It like goes to over th- like 30 volumes or something, her diaries. And they were put away after she died. And then one of her descendants decoded them, I think, in the early 20th century, but realized what it was saying and so put them all back up, like walled them all up again, like they were just too scandalous. 
And then it was a scholar called Helena Whitbread in, I think, the 80s who started to decode them and finally cracked the code and published the diaries of Anne Lister. Speaking of Anne Lister, this reminds me a lot of the sex stuff from Anne Frank being cut out. Yep. Yep. About about that? Has I don't know anything about that. Oh, my God. There's 25 pages or something. I'm looking up the actual information where she, like, wrote about, like, wanting to fuck. And, like, I think Master, maybe you've read yep. them. So yeah, she, she writes about she writes about masturbation and she writes about a vulva and she writes about desires and, and things like that. And it was just, it was edited out by her, well, by her dad in the, in, cause they, they were the ones that published the diaries. So it was, I don't know, I guess, I guess that I can see that is when they were first published. I can't remember when it was, it was like the sixties or the seventies. And I suppose it might be a bit uncomfortable writing that about your daughter, but it, it doesn't change the fact that she wrote it and it's really important. And, you know, and you, they have been, reintegrated now but yeah there's a lot of that the kind of sanitizing of history we just take out the bits that make us feel a bit uncomfortable and the de the desexualizing of of people who've had trauma also yeah 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 like oh if you've had sexual trauma like that you don't experience pleasure afterwards or like i don't know just that these are like two separate things Mm -hmm. we talked about this in an episode with uh, jiminika the trauma queen (laughs) but also like not To ascribe like cult figures of history with sexuality, yeah, it makes us very uncomfortable. That is like looking at, at, at people's sex lives and like you know. And I'm I'm always interested in like how much does knowing about what a person got up to in the bedroom alter what you know about their work and their legacy and what they do? And is it important that we know that? Does it bring anything that do you know? What I mean that that we know that, that if you know that. I don't know, that Toulouse-Lautrec, the artist, practically lived in a brothel and apparently his dick was so big they used to call him the tripod. What? You know, does that bring a thing to his art? <laughs> I mean, now that you are a scholar and sort of a, I guess, a keeper of history or of deciding what to put out there to your students, how do you decide what to include in your classes or like what you want listeners or students to take from, from what you say? Wow, what kind of censoring do you <laughs> it's tricky isn't it because everyone's got a bias even if you try and be as absolutely subjective as you can be it's, it's you can never be completely neutral but what I try and do is just present information and facts and then the students can hopefully read like develop their own bias or have their own understanding of it and I try and do that on the Twitter feed as well it's like some of the images I know make people uncomfortable or they can be challenging or some of the facts in the history but I think it is important that you we see it and engage with it what are some of the things you've posted or presented to students that have been met with significant discomfort backlash anger um nothing really from the students they generally quite like to be challenged I think they they like engaging with material that that perhaps they wouldn't normally do and it's always it's it's always like a big revelation when people realize that yeah they had sex in the past which is like it, it shouldn't be a revelation because how do you think you got here but <laughs> it, it's always like you know when they, they realize that bdsm or you know kinky sex it goes back absolutely to day dot they're always quite stunned by that and fascinated by that um online i suppose i get i get the most criticism uh and people wanting to know about it's trans history that one is a real kind of lightning rod and it's kind of like you sort of you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't because the the arguments going on are so polarized that 
like well like for example if i um was to tweet something about um for example i found a record of a woman that was married to another woman in the 18th century and uh, the newspaper report at the time said she lived as uh, she lived as a man claimed she was a man and it wasn't until she died that we found out that quote she was a woman so when you're reporting that and like you're tweeting about it you're kind of left with this do i say that she's trans because today we might say that she's trans but that person isn't here to articulate that so she may she have actually just been pretending to be a man so she could live right, with absolutely. a woman. And there's a million reasons why she might have just been pretending to be a man. It was much easier to be a man for a start off. Uh, you could earn more money. It was She might have been a butch lesbian. She might. We just don't know. She wasn't here. But whenever you tweet something like that, if you don't say she's trans, some people will call you out on it. But then if you do say she's trans, other people will call you out on it. So that's a real mm. tricky minefield. And I suppose that all you can do, again is present the information of just like, this is all we know about this person. You're going to have to make up your own mind about that. How do you even decide what to post? I feel like I would just like anxiously lie in agony. of like, (laughs) what? You do. And it's horrible when you post something and you realize it has offended people. Mm. I mean, you know, like you don't want to offend. I don't mind offending some people. I think it's quite funny. Yeah. When people get offended by stuff, um, oh, I know what happened. A few years ago, I posted an image of a cross-dressing man from the 19th century on the feed. And all I said was, this is an image of a cross-dressing man. It's from the Welcome Collections, 19th century collection, blah, blah, blah. And then people started to say, oh, my God, doesn't that look like Boris Johnson? Right? So all I did was reply to that and say, it's not Boris Johnson. And then the whole thing went viral. Right. So then like newspapers are being written about it. People are talking about it on talk shows, this whole thing. And like all the headlines are Boris Johnson is this time traveling Tory transvestite. And I'm getting loads of abuse from people like saying that it's transphobic. Yeah, it is. And homophobic. And I didn't say any of that. And it, oh, that's horrible when that happens. Yeah. But because you have like the following and the voice, maybe it's yeah, like. Yeah, because, because I, I tweeted it on my feed, even though I didn't tweet it to say Ah, this looks like Boris Johnson. The original tweet just said, this is from the Welcome Collection. This is a 19th century image. Don't know who the subject is. That was it. So yeah, that, that hurts when people like, you know, you get trolled saying that you're being hurtful and abusive. Sorry for the interruption, but do you know that moment when you realize you forgot to put deodorant on? Well, let's all take a pause to do the superstar movie move and put our hands under our armpits and then smell them like this. My pits currently smell like native deodorant cucumber mint. I kid you not. My mom convinced me to use native deodorant, and now here they are sponsoring this episode and giving discounts. Native is a safe, simple, and effective deodorant made without aluminum, parabens, and talc, aka the stuff that may be linked to some serious health issues. Also, it works, and it feels super smooth. I have tried many healthy deodorants, but Native lasts during my long days at the office. They smell amazing and also come in unscented and baking soda-free options. Check out Native to see if it fits for you. They even offer discounts for folks who get monthly deliveries to your door. For 20% off your first purchase, go to nativedeodorant.com and use our promo code S&S in all caps. That's S-A-N-D-S in all caps. For some reason, though, if it's not for you, they even offer free returns and exchanges. So go to nativedeodorant.com and enter our promo code S&S. We hope you enjoy. Now, back to the episode. 
how do you take how do you take care of yourself when you know that your intention is to to educate and to highlight these things and then you get this pushback? Well, sometimes they're right. <laughs> That's the word. That's <laughs> okay, the word. so like it's stepping back and being like, can I take some of this to heart? Yeah, like not to hurt yourself, but to like make corrections for next time. Yeah, I always try and like like listen to what they're saying because. You know, if you barrel in just being really defensive, that's not going to help anything. So I try and stop and think, are they right? Um, but I suppose sometimes you just you just don't engage with it because it kind of throws fuel on the fire and you have to accept that some people are just, they're just out for a fight and it really doesn't matter what you say. It, it doesn't matter how you explain it. It's, it won't be good enough. So you just, yeah, you just stop engaging or you put it down or you just go and do something else or... You know, I, and it's tough. I can't pretend that it doesn't get to you sometimes. Yeah. So, I mean, also in response to some people do give criticism or whatever, and then you do respond. I read your piece on your blog about thinking that you shouldn't have named your project Whores of Your, um, mm. not a sex worker. And yep. so I'm just curious if you could speak to a little bit to about the criticism that you may have received regarding that and then your processing, how you responded. Um, and how you're feeling. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's definitely one example where it was better to just shut up and listen rather than rather than go. Oh, I didn't mean to offend anybody. Um, it was the the truth of it is that it really hadn't occurred to me that it would be offensive. I didn't give it that much thought. I'm afraid, and that is, is that's my failing, and that's that's on me. Is I thought that whole round with your, and it was really funny, and that's the full extent of it. What I can say is that I didn't actually intend the word whore to be about somebody that sells sex. I meant it more in a kind of like the way it's used in a derogatory insult to anyone that's sexual. You know, like I think most women at some point have been called a whore by somebody who, you know, was being a douche, right? Or like a slut or a slag. So I really I meant it in that way, but it doesn't change the fact that that sex workers hear that every day as a term of abuse and derogatory. So um and I thought about maybe changing the name of the project, but then I thought that that was something that I kind of wanted to capture, that um, sense of insult and, and what it means. So I wrote a lot about the word and why I'd chosen to use it and acknowledged that it is offensive to some and I shouldn't have done it and I'm really sorry and the sex work community have been really supportive and very, very forgiving and patient with me. Um, but, yeah, that's that's definitely an example of me barreling about thinking that something's funny and not looking to the nuance of it and and then kind of yeah having to acknowledge that yeah it was a bit of a dick move really and perhaps I shouldn't have done it so yeah what are the origins of the word though um well it's it's one of those words that's incredibly old like it's so old the kind of dictionary sort of gives up after a while it just sort of goes mm so it was back there somewhere um it's germanic in origin and it's kind of linked to words like hura and ha and but they think that the root of it um ahura means like to desire that you desire something so its root origin is it, it's quite interesting but it doesn't it hasn't meant somebody that sells sex until about 17th century I mean it was used to that as well but it was more just like an insulting term for any woman that was having sex so the fact that it's so old means that there's been shaming of women who are desirous oh, yeah. throughout time oh, yeah. yes yeah absolutely absolutely but in some yeah. cultures no because I in the article you mentioned that a lot of um 
native populations um, oh. didn't have a word for whore. Yep, absolutely. It was um, some. It was another special treat that the West gave to the world when we colonized everybody. Um, is they, yeah, um, the Native Americans, for example, they don't have any word for prostitution or whore. Uh, neither do the did the hillland tribes in Thailand, uh, and the Hawaiians didn't have any words for that. In fact. When Christian missionaries turned up to civilize the Hawaiians in the 19th century, they had to invent words to teach them about sexual shame because they didn't exist in their language. So, so maybe they didn't need yeah. sex workers because people were allowed to do what they wanted sexually and didn't have to find it. In yeah, and, and also something else? a lot of these cultures didn't have money. And essentially, mm. sex work or any kind of work is the result of capitalism and economic drive so if you don't have money and if people don't have jobs and they don't need to earn a living then that suddenly means that you're not going to have a lot of professions i mean when i first hear that it sounds good that they didn't have it but i wonder is there any um is there any negative or downside because i mean we love and support sex workers and love that it can be an independent um empowering job um so is it just that like people were forced into having sex and not getting paid <laughs> Like, do we see any history of that? <laughs> um, I I think that that I would be really because, like, when you say there was no word for prostitution or or for sex work, it doesn't mean that people didn't barter with sex. Mm -hmm. It doesn't. You know, sex is a, is a fun activity, and there is always going to be a need and a want for it. Um, and some would argue that it's, it's always an exchange, transactional. Transactional, right? Absolutely, and it, it's so that's. Yeah, so it's always been there, but it, I don't think it means that people were forced or necessarily anything like that. It just means that these were societies without economic markets where people had to go and earn money in the same way that people had to earn money here. Or in some cases, they were um, matriarchal societies. Mm -hmm. So I think that there is an argument that it's kind of the result of, cap of patriarchy, not entirely, but that was definitely an influence in it. But when you put people in the disadvantaged position of you're going to have to earn this thing I've invented called money and it's mostly men that have money and you're not allowed to have a job because you have a vulva. You're kind of creating this, you know, sex sells well, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. But also just to underscore, and this is like a very important, I think, facet of sex work today is that it's absolutely born out of capitalism, but it's not born out of like, I'm being forced into this job. Like it's a job like, any other. I think um, Lorelai Lee, for example, she talks a lot about how, like, I'm allowed to fucking hate my job. I'm allowed to have a bad day. Yep. Allowed to be yep. like, like, just like everyone else does. Just some like days. everybody else. We also feel, but then there's also this like concern of it's such a threatened job anyway. And there's like so many people out for blood to, to really not only fail to support them, but really take them down that it's this really yep. interesting um, line to walk where you have to acknowledge that like capitalism is what creates sex work and that you have to earn a living. Yeah. Cap capitalism creates jobs. That's, that's what capitalism does. Capitalism creates a situation where everybody has to do something to make money. Everyone, everybody is selling something. That's the situation that capitalism creates. And the thing is like when sex work is, it pays pretty well and I mean ridiculously well when you compare it to like a zero hours contract or minimum wage 
you know, so it's you've got to look at the situation that people are in and then think, well, of course, people are opting for sex work. It pays a lot of money. It gives you a lot of time off, et cetera, et cetera. But what we shouldn't be doing is demonizing this as a choice or holding sex workers to some kind of standard that we don't do for other people. You know, you don't run around to, with other jobs going, well, what would, your mom, what would your mother think of this? Or, you know, like, and this idea that, that if a sex worker, they have to enjoy their job all the time, otherwise it's inherently abusive. Well, that's bullshit. I have days when I don't enjoy my job very much, you know? And, it, it, yeah, it all gets caught up with moralizing, and it's, it's really, really damaging. I mean, obviously, on this podcast, we have embraced the reclaiming of words that have felt abusive to us, like slut. But in hearing the way people have responded to your use of the word whore and how you've had to, in turn, respond, um, I guess we've talked a little bit before, I think, about the history of the word slut. But I wonder if you know any more about it, because I wonder if we're doing the same thing, like reclaiming a, a word or something that's not ours to reclaim. When, whenever anyone reclaims a word, is it's, it's a really interesting nuance because there are rules about it, but no one really knows what the rules are because they've not been set down, for example. You know, like one person can use a word and it's considered horrendously offensive, then another group can use it, and that's fine. So I don't think that you're um, – I think that you're fine to use the word slut because I think that that is something that every single woman especially can identify with that they have been called and that that is, has been a term of abuse. Uh, so I think that you are in a position to reclaim that. Also, etymologically, yeah. it doesn't have, uh, like, a, a, my understanding is it doesn't have a sex worker connotation. It's about, like, no. a slovenly woman, like a dirty woman. Yeah, yeah like, slag, like, yeah. Iris. Yeah, a slag was originally um, the, the the leftover waste from like um, the ironworks, I think. So it was kind of like something that was discarded, uh, something that was dirty. And it is kind of linked with that word slut, which means a slovenly, dirty woman, a lazy woman. And they kind of get meshed together to mean, you know, just just a nasty woman who likes to have sex. And that's and it's, it's a kind of it's a yeah. And it's a just and it's strange that that we have these really insulting terms for women but they just don't exist for men they just don't not in the same way i know that you can put man in front of whore and then come up with something but it's you don't get words like that that i mean it's always around female sexuality and the way the only way to get those words is to like masculinize a word that already that like right. applies to women yeah like there yeah you no know, it's, it's it's like a it's a neologism but not a neologism that is like born organically it's like we have to find a thing yeah right absolutely absolutely and that's the case throughout most of the history especially in the west is that women's sexuality has been judged far more severely than men's sexuality has and these words are, are a legacy of that you know that you're made to feel shame about that and so the question is is always well what is a slag what is a slut then how many people do i have to have slept with in order to have earned this particular title I think you know what do you mean by it Right. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. It's like, um, it's not really about, it's just about shaming a woman for being sexual. It's got no grounding in fact whatsoever. Like um, Joan of Arc was called the French whore by the English and she died a virgin. So, I mean, it's got nothing to do with really how many people you're sleeping with. It's just trying to embarrass and humiliate a woman by suggesting that she's sexual. So speaking of shaming, what sort of, um, punishments existed for whores and sluts throughout history. 
I mean, I would imagine uh, like, the dunking of, you know, burning witches is already right. Like, it, what else is there? Not only for witches, but like people who were sluts and whores. Like, how did people control these women that they identified well, as whores and sluts? In addition to the social stigma of like right. calling someone that. Well, um, there wasn't. Well, I suppose there was like centralized governments in, in places like the the US and the UK, but it was very much up to individual uh, jurisdictions to come up with their own laws and how they regulate it. But there are many, many records of punishing a woman for being a common whore or for being a strumpet or a harlot. Uh, and these would be things like being, and it was called being whipped at the cart's ass. And that was like where you would be kind of like tied to a cart and dragged through the through the town and people people would whip you and throw things at you and that would be kind of like in like a smock sort of like kind of not quite your underwear but not too far off um nathaniel hawthorne's the the scarlet letter there are cases of that where people have been branded or they've been uh, like they're forced to wear something to to show who they are uh, there was a record in the 18th century of a small uh, island in the uk called the isle of man where a woman was punished for being um, a repeated poor uh, by being um, dragged to a boat and then kind of like dragged in the sea around the harbour. So these punishments do go on and on and on, I'm afraid. Really nasty. Um, did the concept of honour killings exist in like Western medieval culture? For people who don't know what that is. Oh, it's when, you know, a woman in a family is found out to be sexual and that can even be through rape. Before um, marriage. Yeah, um, like sexual, like transgressively sexual, either through rape or choice that they like is bringing too much shame upon the family. So they get rid of her. Um, I suppose that, that it probably did exist. It did happen and did go on, but not quite as a kind of like a looks like an institution as, as it can do in other religions. But what you get is that when a woman fell, quote unquote, that she would then receive so much social stigma that she was kind of ostracized from society. Um, and it's it's there's it like a really really serious thing to do was to be sexually dishonoured because then the sh the shame of it was so excruciating that it could well mean that your family would cut you off. Uh, it could mean that you would be shunned from society. You, if you had a job, you'd almost certainly lose it. Um, you would be regarded as a loose woman, and then obviously you can imagine that your options go down and down and down and down and down. Um, in the 18th century in London. Uh, a hospital was set up to take in foundling babies. And the reason that that was being done is because it was estimated that there was about a thousand babies a month who were being abandoned or murdered because they were illegitimate. And that's the state of grinding poverty and the state of shame that existed around it. And the hospital was absolutely overwhelmed with demand from mothers that just couldn't look after their baby uh, for reasons of shame and stigma, but also poverty. And one of the saddest things you'll see in your whole life is um, each baby was left with like a little token uh, so the mother could come back and claim it later and the hospital still exists today and it still has all of these tokens and there's just thousands of bits of ribbons and thimbles and buttons and tiny things that mothers would give to these babies thinking that they could come back and get them. So I'm sure that we did have honour killing but we had an honour system in place that meant that if any woman sexually transgressed they would be socially ostracized and shunned so so sort of on a on a on a different note not i mean obviously there's like a lot of shame about having sex but there's also a lot of desire to have sex right which is where the origin of word comes from and one part of your research that i found especially fascinating is the things that people did to 
cast spells or rituals in order to get somebody to be attracted to them. In particular, yeah. the making of the bread with the vulva <laughs> or the fish. <laughs> in the vulva. So, what I'm are you talking curious. about? There, there are elements of research that Kate has has uncovered, and so I was curious if you could speak a little bit about the vulva fish, the vulva bread, and then any other sort of interesting. Um, magic ritual spells to get somebody to be attracted to you that have been used yeah I mean people have used like spells and incantations and charms all throughout history of course they have and like this so the idea of a love spell that you'd be able to do something and, and you know come up with something that makes somebody really desire you uh, and one of the things seems to have been this ritual that's called cockle bread um, which is, turns up in a, a text that's called a penitential, which is basically a religious text from um, I think about the 11th century, this one, um, that contains like a sort of an index of sins, basically. So um, a priest would know exactly how, what penance to give out if someone should present with this sin, and they're demented things, honestly. One of them is uh, women trying to get men to really fancy them by effect, by baking bread with their genitals they kind of instead of like kneading it with their hand they'd have to like sit on it and squat and kind of rock back and forth and then they would bake the bread and give it to the object of their affection the idea being that they would be inflamed with lust with them and then again we see this cropping up in about i think it's about the 17th or 16th century and it's called cockle bread and it's described as being like kind of like a folk spell where women would get together and bake bread and kind of like then lift up their skirts and squat over it and waddle back and forth singing a weird song <laughs> and then they would bake it and again give it to their intended affection and yeah and there is a reference in one of these medieval penitentials to women putting a fish inside their vulva and then baking it and then giving that to somebody that they fancied <laughs> <laughs> so good right <laughs> And it kind of raises the question, was that actually happening enough for a priest to decide they needed to be to be very clear about what kind of penitent, what kind of sin that like, you know, punishment that would re require? Well, this or, was or just there? this was just in that movie Midsummer. Yeah. Not no spoilers, but here's a little spoiler. So turn it down if you haven't seen it. Um, there is someone trying to like gain the affections of someone. And so they um, they put their menstrual blood in the drink and then they put their pubes in the food well yeah there's, there's references to that throughout history as well yeah um but just back to your thing about was it actually happening enough such that these religious folks had to write it down or were these religious folks just like repressed and writing down their fantasies and like the way i'm i'm gonna go for the latter i think <laughs> i think that that, that yeah You're i like, i, I think that it's more like giving them ideas because i guess that would be fucking someone just, some flea bag just, seduction going on there <laughs> yeah uh, i i think that it's an overactive imagination i think Although, you know, I don't want to discount it in the entire history of human experience that some woman hasn't thought, I know what I'll do. <laughs> I would eat that bread. Oh, totally. I, I would make that bread. Make the bread. <laughs> let's make skirts. Maybe we will add this to our Patreon. If you would yeah, like Sluts and Scholars cockle bread, how much would you yeah. pay? <laughs> you have to get it by health and safety standards. Do you have to? If, no, we're not a restaurant. Yeah. 
just a oh, gift. There you go. Let's, just let's a get, gift. Let's get a recipe together. Oh, good. <laughs> Send us one if you have one <laughs> from the history. I love old history recipes. They're just like a handful of flour and like, it's very funny. <laughs> they're, they're very ambiguous. Yeah, they're, they're not very good on the exact measurements, are they? They're just like some butter, some lard, and in this case, a vulva. <laughs> Perfect. We'll figure it out. So uh, we've been talking about a lot of the like negative shame things. And I wonder if you've, if there have been any highlights of uncovering other stories of hope and sexual freedom, or at least, I mean, like you were talking about the diary of the person, even though it had to be coded. Um, like I'm wondering about any like proud whores that you've come across. Oh Yeah. yeah. I mean, you find them all throughout history, which is, so it kind of presents like this, it's all happening in a very oppressive atmosphere, but it, again, you're just not quite sure how much people are actually paying attention to how oppressed they should be. Um, I think that probably one of my, my favourite out and proud whores was Napoleon Bonaparte's sister, who was called Pauline. I don't know if you've heard of her, but she was notorious for shugging her way through absolutely anything that would stay still. In fact, she at one point, she was having so much sex that she was diagnosed with her physician with a, quote, exhausted vagina. She had that. <laughs> <laughs> so she was quite out out and proud. Um Tallulah Bankhead is another one, sort of early 20th century actress who was very openly bisexual and enjoyed sex. She said things like, uh, my father warned me about men and booze, but no one said anything about women and cocaine. <laughs> so, you know, and, and I suppose like, stories of hope and things come. But when you uncover, you know, or when you just realize that that like gay people, same sex desire, transgender sex, all of those things have been with us always and throughout history. And that kind of in itself gives you hope, you know, and like the people have been fighting oppression and all the rest of it. But it's absolutely central to who we are and will always be with us. And that's that gives you hope. So that's such a great note to end on, like this hope that exists in history, but also I think this hope for your research just existing and obviously like the intellectual rigor that comes along with it, but it being so loved and adored, like making history accessible and making like sexual research a thing I feel is so incredible, but I'm also really curious, like obviously it's probably not been just all that. And so do you feel in academic circles that because your work is sex focused, that people try to delegitimize you more than other things. Hmm. Um. Yeah, I have. I have experienced that, but I think by and large, people are very accepting and very encouraging. Um. There has been research done on people who study sex in any form, and it has been shown again and again that pe- that you do experience stigma and discrimination and I think it's just like you know it's the little things like people aren't comfortable with it so they'll make a joke about it or you know that they'll make a jibe or they'll kind of like you know oh it's really funny but kind of that sort of like constantly reinforcing this thing that you're you're laughable that you're that people laugh at you and laugh at what you do and that can be really tough but I like what I do and I enjoy it and it's taken me a long time to kind of get to the point where I can think yeah a lot of people might not be comfortable with it but Fuck them. <laughs> yeah, and that even goes to the way that you portray yourself. Like, your pictures are not these, like, stodgy academic pictures. You're, like, cool and fun and 
pretty and like fe- like using tools of fem like not using but like accepting tools of femininity as opposed to sometimes what I feel at least in the past like women scholars have had to take away their sexuality their beauty their like funness funness in order to be taken yeah. regardless but, yeah. I mean yeah you get you get a lot of that and it's not just in academia I think it's all throughout like any kind of professional thing like the idea that if a woman you know doesn't look serious enough that she's not that, that she's uh, letting the side down or something um which is bullshit and but it's you know I'm I suppose you can only just be the person that that you want to be and I wouldn't be comfortable or happy dressing in a different way so I'm I'm okay with it and I'm well aware that I don't fit an academic stereotype that a lot of people think of but I'm okay about that and the more I go on the more I realize there are plenty of people like me so we're okay. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been so wonderful. And clearly, if people aren't following Whores of Yore, do it. Get at it. At Whores of Yore. And yours Y-O-R-E. For those curious. How else can people uh, stay abreast of the work you're doing and and other things about you and support you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Well, uh, there's the website. So that's thewholesofyore.com. And... um, I'm always looking for articles. If anybody has anything that they want to write about or would like to, you know, write a piece on, that would be fantastic. There's also Instagram, which is uh, more whores of your, uh, but that's there at the moment. But Instagram might, you know, they they get a bit twitchy. They took it down a couple of weeks ago and then they put it back. So, but it's there at the moment. Uh, and I've got a book coming out based on the project in February in time for Valentine's Day. Yay! Well, please keep us posted. We would love to. Well, and I do I have a chapter in, on sex and bread in that book. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited. I always have to have the sex before eating bread because sometimes then I'm just like, don't touch me. Yeah, you don't want to be bloated. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's why you put your vulva on it before you bake it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder yeah, right? if you come from rubbing your clitoris on dough. Of course. You come from anything. <laughs> But there is a lot of bread dildos throughout history, so that has been tried and tested, that one. I, like, never want to stop talking to you because <laughs> oh, it. you're bestowing on me. I'm just like, oh, I love that. I wish I, maybe wish I had. I always thought I hated history. Like, that was my least favorite subject in school. I was like, fuck it. But I hear that a lot. Yeah. But yeah. anyway, oh, God, we're so grateful for you taking the time, especially – um, figuring out the GMT PST scheduling. So thank you so much. Uh, as oh always, goodness. if you want to stay up to date on everything that we're doing, you can find us on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Slut Scholars. And one of the best ways to support us is by coming to patreon.com slash Sluts and Scholars. There may be a vulva bread uh, perk there someday. <laughs> and of course, if you have any questions or comments or rants or suggestions, please email us at slutsandscholars at gmail.com. Thank you.